Now, D.L. Moody is credited with saying that many men want a religion in which there is no cross, but they can't enter heaven, enter heaven that way. This is kind of where we left off the last time we were together. Before Jesus would head, remember, up towards a mountain, uh, that he would there be transfigured in front of three of his friends. Before that happens, remember that Jesus would tell his disciples, I must suffer. Remember, it climaxes in that statement where the guys tell him, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. He's waited, he's progressively revealed himself for over three years to the guys. They're finally getting it. And then he instantly, clearly tells them what his purpose is. I've come because I must suffer. And the dialogue that Jesus has with his friends continues, and he tells them in addition to having to suffer it personally, he then tells him that if you're going to follow me, then it means that you too will suffer. In fact, remember, Jesus says, if you're going to follow me, you're going to have to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. And the direction that he was asking them to follow him in is a road of self-sacrifice, is a road towards death. His invitation was and is to every person, come and follow me, but really his invitation was, come and follow me along a pathway of self-sacrifice towards death. You remember that Jesus he then withdraws with three of his friends, three of his disciples, atop a mountain, and there he'd be transfigured. You could say in that moment, the glory of Jesus' deity, it kind of bursts through his humanity for them to see, get this beautiful moment in time to take in the glory of God there in front of them. Now think about this. God the Father shares this beautiful and powerful moment with his son where the glory of God shows up and the voice of God is heard. So that, the beauty of that moment was experienced so that the, the, the son could feel the father's loving embrace again as the glory of God encapsulated the entire mountain. It was so that Jesus could hear the father's affirming voice again saying, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Hear him. Jesus shares this beautiful and powerful, really intimate, special moment with his father, because he'd soon be left alone without that voice responding to his cries. He shares this beautiful and powerful, intimate moment with his father because soon he'd be stripped naked and left isolated on a cross. It's interesting, the very fact that the majority of Jesus' disciples don't even make the trip with him in this moment because they're not invited. He leaves nine of them down the hill, only takes three of them with him atop the hill. Not, not to mention the fact that he looks at those who come and say, don't mention this to anyone until after the resurrection. It makes me stop and think that the moment that God the Father and God the Son shared atop that mountain maybe wasn't necessarily just for us as his followers, so much as it was for them as a father and a son, as Jesus now begins his march not just down the mountain, but a march towards a cross. And the son before heading towards that next hill through the valley and a hill called Golgotha, the father first wanted to share a moment of an embrace and of affirmation and love. And as Jesus comes down the mountain, he'll no longer now pursue a public ministry. Instead, he's going to withdraw from the crowds. You'll see the new pattern. And he's going to instead be spending time with his disciples, preparing them for his departure, preparing them for his death, no longer teaching the masses. Instead, in your mind, you need to start thinking he's preparing the 12 for when he is gone. And our story logs Jesus' journey down from the mountaintop into the valley below. Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 14. 
And when Jesus came to the disciples, this is the rest of them, the other nine, he saw a great multitude around them and scribes disputing with them. Immediately when they saw him, all the people were greatly amazed and running to him, greeted him. And he asked the scribes, what are you discussing with them? Then one of the crowd answered and said, teacher, I brought you my son who was a mute spirit. And whenever it seizes him, sorry, I said who was, he has a mute spirit. And whenever that spirit, this demon seizes him, it throws him down. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth and becomes rigid. So I spoke to your disciples that they should cast it out, but they could not. He answered, in, answered him and said, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him, the boy, to me. Then they brought him to Jesus. And when he saw Jesus, immediately the spirit convulsed within him, and he fell on the ground and wallowed, foaming at the mouth. So Jesus looked the Father's direction, and Jesus said to the Father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From his childhood. And often he's thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Hear the pain of a dad here. Jesus, have compassion, yes, on my boy, but on me and him together because watching him suffer like this, Jesus, have compassion on us. Jesus said to him, if you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately the father of the child, he cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. When Jesus saw that the people came running, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, Deaf and dumb spirit, I command you, come out of him and enter him no more. Then the spirit cried out, convulsed him greatly, and came out of him, and he became as one dead, so that many said, He's gone, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. There's a a small break in time before that next verse. Where it says, and now he had come into the house. His disciples, when they had come into the house, asked him privately, away from the crowd, why could we not cast it out? So Jesus said to them, this kind can come out by nothing but prayer and fasting. Then they departed from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know it. For he taught his disciples and said to them, the son of man is being betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And after he is killed, he will rise the third day. But they did not understand this saying, and they were afraid to ask him. As Jesus, think about it, comes down from this beautiful, glorious, insane, life-giving moment in time atop a mountain with his father, with three of his disciples there present with him who are sworn to secrecy, as he comes down, he is greeted by the sight of a large crowd and by the sound of a heated debate. The argument is between three groups of people. There's, there's the religious leaders, there's nine of his disciples that had remained at the bottom of the hill, and then there's a bunch of onlookers, a whole multitude that's gathered around. But center stage is the subject matter of the disagreement. It's a young boy who we can easily picture as being held by a very disoriented father. The boy's suffering as the afternoon's discussion 
And, and the disciples' inability to drive the demon out of the boy it was the cause for laughter and ridicule in that moment that Jesus walks into. That, that's what's described when it says that they disputed with them. They make a public scene like, oh, when Jesus is with you, this is what happens. Now Jesus isn't here. Now look at what's going on. And undoubtedly, this leaves the disciples greatly confused because they had previously been sent out by Jesus and they were driving demons out of people. You remember, Jesus even says, don't glory in that but glory in the fact that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. So they are successfully doing this in the past, but now they're not able to. Most tragically, though, of all that's taking place is that it left a father holding his tormented son without relief. We can easily picture this bewildered and broken man who came for help for his tormented son. He did not come for an argument, the argument that ensued. And the chaos of the scene, it wasn't why he was there at all. Now think about this. Sandwiched between Jesus' previous comments, two statements about his suffering, death, and resurrection, and then he finishes this passage with Mark saying again that Jesus is saying he's going to suffer and die and rise from the dead. Sandwiched between those two statements are two contrasting stories about a father and his son. One story shows a father on a mountain embracing his son and the healing power of his love and power atop the Mount of Transfiguration. But the other story shows this father that we've just met here who, who helplessly holds his tormented son without a wish or a plan of how he'll help him at all. He's in the valley of despair. It's true that our life experiences, more often than not, they look more like the man probably down in the valley holding his son overwhelmed and feeling like his life is out of his control and chaotic. Most of the time, our life experience looks like a life that's lived in the valley. It's not often like the powerful experience that they had on top of the mountain where Jesus was embraced and affirmed, where, where the feeling wasn't chaos, it was calm, where the experience was not disappointment and pain. It was, it was a moment of hope and of peace. It was a still, quiet moment. Last week, we pointed out for those who are on the mountaintop, really what they experienced was a moment of worship where they were not detaching from reality. Remember, we said they were not detaching from reality any more than they were disembodied from themselves in that moment. They were very present in that moment, still engaged with a broken world, but what they did was they connected with, engaged with a greater, deeper, truer reality. That's what worship is. When we worship God, we don't disengage with our reality any more than we just uh, disembark from our bodies or, or have this disembodied experience. No, we are engaging with a greater, truer reality. We're pausing to remember God and his goodness and commitment to us. But for most of us, our life is often lived in the valley. And in our story here about the man who finds himself in that valley, there's a few things I just want to point out to you quickly as we make our way through this story. The first thing that I think is worthy of your consideration is the deceptive and destructive nature of evil in this story. The deceptive and destructive nature of evil. Now here's the unfortunate thing. The, the, I came to church and the pastor started with this encouragement to go serve children's ministry and then he told us about a little demon child in order to counterbalance that and tell us not to. No, I'm telling you about a, a boy who needed a touch from Jesus and a family who needed that too. That's why it's fitting to remind you that we have an opportunity to be this and do this for people, to love on them like Jesus had loved them and point them to Jesus, the one who can move in power in their home and bring stability in their lives. 
But one of the things that stands out to me in this story is how destructive evil is. You know this if you're a student of the Bible, that back in Genesis chapter 3, we're introduced to really the introduction of sin into God's good and, and created physical world where there's a future prophet in Israel who will come along and kind of give us some background. The prophet's name is Ezekiel, and he'll tell us the backstory that there was an angel that existed in heaven with God who is created by God. He's not an equal to God, but a created being by the name of Lucifer who decided at some point in time that he wanted to be like God, and rather than being a worshiper of God, to be worshipped as God. And when his rebellion failed in heaven, he brought it here to earth and he brought with him one third of the angels of heaven with him to join in this rebellion against God. Genesis 3 then logs the moment when mankind joins that rebellion. And the scope of rebellion and sin's impact is staggering when you think about it. When sin and evil entered God's good world, it shook the world and the world's been shaking ever since then. Think about it. Now every person has a sinful fallen nature that makes it seem and feel natural to make ourselves master of our own universe now and to exploit and objectify other people using them for our own benefit rather than naturally being created to have a union with God where we love him and he is the master of this universe and we view other people as image bearers worthy of love and care and dignity and respect because they are made in the image of God and as such, They have intrinsic value. All of that becomes distorted when evil enters the, excuse me, enters the world. See, this is a personal problem that exists in each of us as sons of Adam. We don't just have to face the punishment or consequence of Adam's sin. No, we've been born into, think about this, we've been born with a sinful, distorted, fallen nature now, not just facing judgment for what he did, but part of the byproduct of what he did is that we now are, are sinful in rebellion naturally. Now, now think about it this way. No parent has ever at any time in human history been trying to teach their children or guard them from the opportunity to, to reach for the fruit, the proverbial fruit of making their life all about themselves. No parent is trying to guard their kid from making that choice. We as parents are slapping their hands because they already naturally instinctively make that choice. We aren't teaching them to say, that's mine. We're teaching them to say, no, it's, it's worth sharing what you have. We're not teaching them to, to take something from someone else when they want it or, or to, uh, to push back against an authority figure or to yell no. They naturally do those things. As parents, our job is to try to curb those natural desires and reshape them because every person doesn't just face judgment because of what Adam did. We all face the cold reality that we are equally broken now too. This isn't just a personal problem. This is really a corporate problem within society as a whole though. In fact, in Romans chapter 8, it says, For the creation was then subjected to futility. It can be translated to deprivation. That creation itself, one scholar described it as having a figurative meaning of transientness. Creation itself is now subjected to transientness. It's its own inability to find its place. The idea is that it's broken so deeply that it no longer functions as home for anyone that it leaves every person still longing for a place where they could truly belong because the place is so deeply broken. You see, when the Bible says that the world was subjected to futility, it's telling us that brokenness is now creation's natural default setting. That's what it's saying about it. 
You see, in every conceivable way, evil and humanity's partnership with it has cursed our world. I mean, look at in our story, what the presence of evil has done to this boy. This is not, evil is not just some impersonal force. No, it's this unique demonic entity in this story who's functioning like a parasite that's found inside a host, who's functioning like a puppet master who's exploiting this boy's life. It's robbed him of his humanity and left him despairing of life itself. He's erratic and out of control. He's despondent and even suicidal in our story. The dad says he's throwing himself into the fire and into water. Do you, do you catch what he's saying? My son is trying to die. This demon manifests and is trying to take his life from us. Now, if you struggle even believing that this is a potential reality in our world, I wish we had time to get back into this, but we've covered this in the past, and so I'd point you backwards to our podcast where we talked about in our origin series at the beginning of the year, we talked about the destructive nature of evil and when it entered the world. Uh, We also, in Mark 5, we talked about Jesus dealing with a legion of demons that possessed a man, and so I'd point you back to those messages where we talked a bit more about this. Uh, But here's what I will tell you today, is that in Scripture, our enemy is referred to as the Satan, That's the accuser, the slanderer, and he's given the title, the father of lies. And I think that this is our enemy's evil work in our world and in our lives personally. And I think if you're a follower of Jesus, although he cannot, I don't believe, possess you, I believe that he can deeply impact your life. He can oppress you. Possession is internal. Take charge and control like a puppet master using a puppet. I don't believe he can do that to me if I'm a follower of Jesus. However, oppression is this empowering by is something that I think we empower him to do outside pressure, outside forces, pinning us in that, that we can fuel, that we can empower by embracing and believing the lies that he whispers to us as the father of lies. I mean, think how deceptive he is. Temptation, it it just simply means the solicitation of evil. Picture a no soliciting side on a door and someone knocking. It's no soliciting. Solicitation of evil, it's someone knocking on you, on your mind, on your heart, knocking on you saying, trying to draw your eyes away saying, hey, this is something I'd like to sell you. This is something I'm presenting to you. Look this direction to something that's evil. But think about it. When we're tempted, he lies and so distorts the truth that evil, the the truth is that evil is always destructive. He distorts that truth enough that in those moments when he comes knocking at the door to, to offer, to solicit evil, it doesn't always even appear to be evil. It doesn't always even appear to be destructive. It appears instead to be beautiful. That's how twisted and deceptive he is. Think about it. It's when a person catches your eyes, and and in that moment, you don't see evil, you see beauty. But if you pursue that person, you're going to see destruction. You're going to see devastation in your marriage and with your children. This is the reason that I think porn addiction is so prevalent, is that because for so many people, what they see now is so appealing and alluring is really a dark and sinister exploitation of another person that's made in the image of God, and it's deeply destructive in the life of the person who's now viewing that exploitation. Because pornography is not some consequence-free sexual exchange or interaction. It is deeply damaging both to the person it exploits and to the person that partakes, but it's so twisted by a deceiver, the father of lies, that what is so destructive and twisted 
can be, for some, deeply appealing and even referred to as a beautiful thing. It's the gossip that we listen to that doesn't seem evil or destructive in the moment, but the damage that it does to people's perception of the person that you're gossiping about is sinister. That's sinister, and it's not easily undone. Anger, think about it, anger, bitterness, unforgiveness doesn't seem evil or destructive. If we're honest, it feels safe. It feels safe because when we're vulnerable is when we're most hurt. And our response to being hurt in a vulnerable moment can be to pull back and to be angry and bitter and unforgiving. So what's evil and destructive all of a sudden just becomes this safe place. At least that's how I view it because it's so distorted. You see, I think that he is incredibly, our enemy is incredibly deceptive and the way that he will solicit evil to us, but we need to understand that evil is always so very destructive to us. I think that there's a warning here for us that's worth pausing just to remember or to consider. And the warning would just be the question of, are there areas in our life where we've redefined evil as less than it truly is? Where we've believed the lie that, no, this isn't evil, this is harmless, this isn't evil, this is pleasurable, this isn't evil, this is beautiful, where we're making excuses for the things that God has marked as evil and destructive, where we're reframing them categorically as no longer being those things, where where we're denying the destructive power of evil and broken things that we can allow into our lives personally or into our homes corporately. The thing that stands out to me in this story is the deceptive and destructive nature of evil. But the second thing that stands out to me in the story is the compassionate care and ultimate authority of Jesus. Think about it. The second thing, not just the deception and destruction of evil, but the compassion and the authority, the compassionate care and authoritative power of Jesus in this moment. In our story, before Jesus will manifest that power, though, and use his authority, he will first demonstrate his deep compassion for the one who in this moment is clenched in evil's grasp. Where Jesus looks at the man, watching the son as he approaches the boy who's possessed by a demon, watching the demon manifest and take over. And as he's flailing on the ground, his attention turns toward the father. And he just asked him, how long has this been happening? Jesus has this unique moment with the father where he sees the tragic reality of a helpless dad watching his son suffer. And he asked the dad, how long? How long has it been like this? How long has he suffered? How how long have you suffered? Remember, the man is an emotional wreck in front of Jesus in that moment. And Jesus' eyes look beyond just, I have authority to fix the problem. He draws close because he's drawn to him with compassion, knowing that he also could heal and mend a broken heart. It's one of those deeply, I think, meaningful exchanges that Jesus has with people that think we can overlook, but that tell us things about the nature and character of God. It's as if the whole world froze and stood still for Jesus, like no one else was present in that moment, like no one else was heard, like nothing else mattered in that moment in time. It was just Jesus and that man. And then Jesus makes this tender inquiry, this this compassionate appeal. It seems like Jesus' care and curiosity to the experience of this family would soon no longer just be, when you think about it, a foreign matter or concept to God. As Jesus leans in and, and begins to ask him about his experience as a dad watching his son die, 
as his curiosity and as his care for that man is seen here in this moment, you need to know soon if you push fast forward, it will no longer be moments where he's inquiring about something he's yet to experience personally. Because soon his own home and family would feel firsthand the shattering reality of pain like this because he would go to a cross. By the end of Mark's gospel, God the Father is seen standing in the shoes of this broken and bewildered father who seems helpless as his son, just seems that way, as his son was tormented by the forces of evil, but he would not hold his tormented son in that moment as this father did. He would watch as his son's lifeless body would be taken down from a cross and placed in a tomb. This would not just be some foreign concept to God. God will enter this man's shoes and feel these things deeply. It's Jesus' compassionate care in the story that for me personally draws me in, but then it's his authority and power that leaves me in wonder because he doesn't just draw in to be sympathetic or empathetic. No, he draws in to care for the man, to tell him that, that he sees what's happening, but then he moves in power. Jesus looks at him and says, if you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. Now think about what he says to him. It, it doesn't promise and say, listen, that, that it's possible for you to do all things if only you believe. If you believe anything, anything can happen. You can make it happen. No, that's, that's what we classify as the prosperity gospel. No, what he does, however, come and promise and say is that if you're willing to believe that I, that God can do and accomplish all things, it's possible for me. He wasn't saying if you'll believe, then you can do it. He says, if you'll come and trust me, the sky's the limit of what could happen. Jesus is drawing faith out of this man, telling him, I'm capable of doing anything and everything you need. And he's asking the man only to take one simple step forward, saying, Jesus, I believe. Remember in the moment, though, we're, we're reading a story about a father who's holding his sick and suffering son. They're facing the terror of seizures, which if you've ever seen a child seize, it's very, very unnerving. But it's a common phenomenon in their household, it seems. His son is now unable to speak and communicate because of the presence of this demon and all that he suffered. He's possessed by a demon who's manifesting in moments. And apparently the boy can't even be left alone for fear that he might do something terrible to himself because of his several failed suicide attempts that his own father is mentioning here. He's suffering terribly, and the hurt and pain of this father was just as apparent and clear to all who gathered around in that moment as the pain of the young boy was apparent. Because it says in verse 24, he cried out and said with tears. He tries to respond to Jesus, but only emotion comes first. It's all just too much for him. It's probably not the first time he's broken down like this. But it will be his last time to weep in desperation holding his son. He says, Lord, I believe, but would you help my unbelief? Isn't it beautiful? Isn't it beautiful that Jesus will respond to this in its imperfect faith? Isn't it beautiful that he says, if you just have faith like a mustard seed, just a, just a hint of it, just a bit. Do you know that I can move mountains for you? Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. There's such honesty in that statement. And I think we live in that tension. 
And I think we're invited to pray in this way even. And in fact, I would say in my life personally, in seasons of my life where I am not praying this way, saying, Lord, I do believe, and I'm asking for these things, and I believe, I believe, I believe, but help my unbelief. When I'm not saying and thinking and praying in this sort of an honest and vulnerable way, it's because I'm not really being honest with myself and God. Because we all live in the tension of, yes, we believe that you're there, but but the, the step of faith for so many of us is to believe that you're present here in my life, care for me, and are committed to me. And even if there's harmful and bad and destructive things here happening to me, that you're still beside me, promising to walk me through this, that, that you and I together will pass through the valley of the shadow of death, where there the sun will rise again. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. There's a reminder here that Jesus can't. That he can. With sickness, he can. Brokenness in a family, he can. You're overwhelmed by your future, he can. It's your fears that have gripped you and held you so tightly, he can. It's a housing market, he can. It's a relationship, he can. It's your depression, your despair, he can. Jesus can. Do you believe that? Can you even just simply say, Lord, I believe, but help me. The compassionate care of Jesus here, but also his authoritative power. If this is how we are meant to see Jesus in the story, then slow down for a moment to realize and remember that we're to find ourselves in this Father's simple and imperfect faith, that we can find ourselves in the valley with him, because that's our life experience. Not just that mountaintop moment where the glory of God is seen, but where the brokenness of life weighs heavy on our shoulders. We're meant then to mirror and echo both his humility and his honesty as he turns Jesus' direction to express his faith in Jesus' ability. Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. After that beautiful moment of compassion, Jesus then moves in power and drives the demon from the boy. It's D.L. Moody, who we discussed earlier, who he made the comment. He said, like a bad tenant, the devil tried to do as much harm as he could when he got notice to leave. And so the boy thrashed about as the, as the demon departed from him. My friends, we need to remember that evil will be unmasked and defeated by Jesus at a cross. Paul wrote to the church in Colossae saying that Jesus at the cross disarmed principalities and powers. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. The in it was him on a cross, suffering and dying, defeating our enemy, him rising from the dead, proving it. Disarmed, that word that's used there, it means to spoil their plans. That's what Jesus did that the cross spoiled their plans for humanity. When it says he triumphed over him, it's a beautiful word picture of a Roman triumph that was very familiar to every person in this culture because the Roman uh, soldiers had gone out on conquest and basically conquered the world. But as these little groups of people would pop up as a resistance, they would come into villages and surrounding communities and they'd tell people, if you don't defect and come to our side, we're going to come and kill you because Rome is far from here. Where's their protection now? And the people would live under the pressure of this enemy who's, yes, been defeated by an empire, but still comes and barks and still comes and yells and threatens them. And they'd live in the tension of, do I yield and go with them? 
Or do I trust that Rome will come and rescue us? Well, when Rome would come and rescue those communities far from Rome, when they'd come and beat back those enemies, they would take the leaders of those groups, the uprisings around them, they'd take them, strip them naked, and drag them behind the Roman general's horse. And they'd say, this is the people you once feared. This is the people who effectively intimidated you. These are the ones that made you question whether or not we would stand with you and for you. These are the ones who once held you captive in fear. But look at them now. They've been stripped of all power. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. Jesus has authority over evil. And this is a done deal. This is what the cross does. It unmasks evil and then defeats them completely in totality. And so today, if that's true, then we respond to evil spirits with the authority and power of Jesus. We respond with the name of Jesus. And I've experienced this in my own life where I've been with people who are demon-possessed. And, and when the demon would manifest, you rebuke it in Jesus' name. You have to be quiet. And instantly, mid-sentence, they clam up. Or you and I, many of us, we've been with someone where we're praying for people as followers of Jesus who are living in bondage and brokenness and, and perpetual sin, and we pray for them in the name of Jesus, and God breaks the power of addiction, and he breaks the power of oppression in their lives. This for me, several years ago, in a gnarly season of depression, where as difficult and hopeless as it felt just to be awake and facing the day, I dreaded going to bed at night because of these terrible, vivid nightmares I had every night for weeks. It's my wife waking up in the middle of the night and looking to the other side of the bed and seeing this presence hovering over me, pushing me down into our bed and beginning to pray in the name of Jesus and the thing being forced to leave and God breaking me out of that rhythm and cycle of having such a broken, terrible, dreaded experience each night I laid my head on a pillow. That this is the reality we live in, that there's power in Jesus' name. You see, evil's presence in our world, it's deceptive, it's pervasive, it's destructive. So what is the answer, we say? And where, what, what, what does creation, what does society, what does a person need, we ask? But the answer is not a what. The answer is a who. God will not leave us without a solution in the brokenness of our world and in the problem of evil. On the contrary, he will become our savior. You see, there are things that stand out in this story to us, and it's the de deceptive and destructive nature of evil, but it's also the compassionate care and authoritative power of Jesus. But then there's this other detail here that the story concludes with, and that's the disciples' tendency to forget. Did you catch it? Their tendency to forget his care and his power. Because our story finishes with this private conversation between Jesus and his disciples, where they're now away from the crowd, and they're sheepishly asking Jesus in verse 28, Jesus, why is it that we couldn't do it? Why is it that we couldn't drive the demon from the boy? Your nerdy fun fact of the day, real quick. In the ancient world, historians tell us that magicians and exorcists believe that the right combination of items, little trinkets, and then incantations being spoken would drive demons out of people. Uh, there are examples that you can Google today while you're at home of the story of Tobit, uh, it's a writing from the third century where it's the guy performing an exorcism on his bride-to-be in her bridal chamber because the seven men who had come in se uh, sequential order, who had come to tell her that it was time for the wedding ceremony to start, she murdered all of them. And so then he went to deal with the demon. And what he did, according to the folklore and legend, well, first of all, he shouldn't have gone in there. He should have been like, she doesn't want to marry me. 
He probably should have left. I hadn't thought of that until this moment. That is not in my notes. But he probably should have just left. What he did instead is he took some fish liver and a heart of a fish and put them on the embers of incense. And the odor was given off so the demon smelt it. And folklore says, and then it fled and didn't come back anymore. At first century history, Josephus, he writes about demonic entities possessing people. And he writes with sympathy when he makes a comment. He says that they entered the living and killed them unless aid is coming forth quickly for them. He was saying that these demons were wreaking havoc on people and that they needed to be rescued. But Josephus, he also writes about an exorcist by the name of Eliezer, uh, who he says would use pungent odors and a ring with a special root inside to try to drive demons out of people. What I'm telling you is that success, they believed in the ancient world, was all a part of their technique. And they're dis- the disciples in this moment asking the question about what did we do wrong seems to indicate, what did we do wrong seems to indicate that their thinking in that moment was, Jesus, we did it the way we had done in the past, but we didn't get the results we did in the past. And Jesus will respond by pointing out to them that their failure was a failure to pray. In verse 29, your Bible might include the term failure to pray and fast, prayer and fasting. If it does include that, you'll probably see an asterisk next to it. Some Bible translations don't even include the word there, fasting, because the earliest manuscript copies of the New Testament didn't even include the word fasting. Later translations and handwritten copies of the Bible include and fasting, Because it was something that New Testament authors were teaching a lot, that the two went hand in hand together. But you remember, Jesus was approached by religious leaders who were like, why don't your guys fast? And Jesus says, they'll fast after the bridegroom is left. But when the party's here, when I'm present, this is a time to celebrate, not a time to mourn. You probably remember that. So in all likelihood, what Jesus pinpoints here is just their lack of prayer. Think about this. Luke and Matthew record the same story. Matthew pinpoints something else. Matthew says that Jesus looks at them and says that their lack of faith was the culprit. Now, is there a contradiction that it was a lack of faith or a lack of prayer, or is it not a contradiction at all? Because faith is really expressed in prayer. Because that's what prayer is. Prayer is an expression of our faith. Prayer is the activity of faith, even you could say. At its core, faith responds to God's goodness and power and to my own Willingness to humbly look at my brokenness and sin, well then prayer is the activity of faith in moments like that. It's resting our hopes and our fears, our life and our future onto God. And we're left in the story that Jesus' disciples did everything other than pray. They thought surely we had had success in the past and so we'll just do it like we did before. We'll just come up and tell them to leave. And when it didn't happen, they were left bewildered and uncertain about what they should do. Now hear me say prayer is not some magical incantation. It's our humility and our faith and our love being expressed to God that opens the door for God to be active in and through our lives. When I pray, it's me abandoning my sense of self-reliance. I'm abandoning my confidence in my own ability. I'm abandoning my own delusional tendency to think that I'm wise enough or strong enough or capable enough to, to deal with what I face. Prayer is an abandonment of self and a rest then on the power of God. Timothy Keller wrote a book on prayer that I really liked. And he made a comment in it where he said, to fail to pray is not merely breaking some religious rule. It is a failure to treat God as God. Prayer is simply a recognition of the greatness of God. There's more than forgetfulness in their failure to pray. There's almost a sense of arrogance here. 
The unfortunate thing is when we look in a mirror, the same can be said of us. When we fail to pray, it's not just a sense of forgetfulness, but there's a part of us that it reveals that's arrogance. Because there's undoubtedly stuff we're all going to face that's going to be too much for us to handle or remedy. And in those moments, it's not just enough to know that we have a lifeline in our time of need. We, through prayer, we must cling to that lifeline. And my, my prayers are not for the purpose of informing God of my situation. He's God. He already knows the needs that I have. But my prayers open a door to God. Don't picture them twisting God's arm. They open a, a door for God to come in and do the things often I believe he's already desiring to do, but wouldn't do before in violation of my free will. He waited for me to say, would you come now? And he says, yeah, I've been waiting for this. In James, it says, the earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power and produces wonderful results. Friends, effective prayer is a continuous posture. It's not simply an emergency procedure that we, that we pull out and enact. Effective prayer, it's this continuous posture of the heart, of humility and faith. It's not simply some emergency procedure we pull out when, when, when life feels like it's just in, in absolute disarray and, and when we have no other option except for God. We need to guard our hearts from the, the messy mistake of seeing prayer as merely a way for me to get things from God, completely overlooking the reality that prayer is a way for me to get God himself. Remember, it's not just my means of getting my will done in heaven. That's not it at all. Prayer is God's means of aligning my heart and my priorities with his so that his will will be accomplished in my life and family and in this earth. First Peter 5 says, cast all your cares upon him because he cares about what happens to you. Guys, think about how crazy it is that when Jesus arrives, he he comes along and begins to address God as his father. No one else did that. And no other religion anywhere in the world has ever done that. Where, where someone comes to the earth and is addressing God in such a beautiful and personal, we could even call it a casual term and way, to say that he is your father. And then what Jesus does, the audacity, it seems so crazy to us. And then to do more than just invite you and I to do the same, he'd take it the next step and instruct us as his followers to do the same, to approach God with the confidence that we're approaching a heavenly father. It's a radically revolutionary moment when he, he instructs us to do that. It's a radically revolutionary concept because it gives a radical revelation of the nature and heart of our God. But God says, I'm inviting you to come to me with this kind of beauty and simplicity and even confidence. In this story, the, the deception and the destructive nature of evil, it's plain to see the compassion and care and yet authoritative power of Jesus is for us on display. And the disciples, our tendency to, to forget his care and his power, it's seen before us. But why don't you close your Bibles? I just throw one last thought for you. It's that Jesus' ultimate triumph over evil is something we're meant to see in this story. You see, the exorcisms in Mark are not simply acts of kindness and mercy by Jesus. They're really, think about it, not just acts of kindness and mercy where he just feels so sympathetic that he moves in power. No, these are statement pieces issued by Jesus for the world to see that he has divine power over the forces of darkness and evil. This is him putting his foot down. 
there's an intentional contrast, though, in these stories that's, that's being drawn here. Remember, on the mountain, the father said, this is my beloved son, and we saw the only begotten son of God in glory. But in the valley, the father says to Jesus, this is my child, my only child. And we saw his only begotten demonized and tormented. But soon, the only begotten of heaven is coming down to meet and rescue him. And there's this mini gospel portrait inside the greater gospel story. This little story here causes us to step back and view the grand story of God. Because there's a self-emptying, think about it, that took place for Jesus when he came down descending the Mount of Transfiguration. There's a self-emptying, leaving glory and power, comfort that was present there, leaving it to re enter down the mountain with the world's brokenness. It takes our minds back to when Jesus would self-empty himself. The first time. Philippians chapter 2 talks about it. It's a great passage for you to read in your home groups this week. When he would leave the safety, the comfort of heaven as he came down to our aid, entering in a self-emptying choice to enter into the world's brokenness. And he did that to beat back and crush the evil one's authority over us. He gave up, Jesus did so much as he emptied himself. And in this moment, though, we are reminded that there's still much to be lost by Jesus. He lived for ages enveloped by beauty and perfection and the transcendent loving union that existed within the the nature of the triune God. That was his eternal place. Soon he'll find his place forsaken on a cross. On the mountain, we we got a glimpse into the eternal reality he, he experienced, only to have it quickly become overshadowed by the cross, where he will hang in isolation and darkness, paying for our sin and redeeming what was lost, taking it back once and for all from the devil, because evil would be unmasked and defeated at the cross. Speaking of this moment, G. Campbell Morgan, he said it this way. He said, he turned back to the race of men to share their burdens and carry their sorrows and sins and make himself responsible for all the cause of their human suffering and pain. In this descent from the Mount of Transfigurations, our minds are meant to turn to really the wonder of his first descent. His first descent and self-emptying love that he had for us to leave the glories of heaven and come and suffer and die to drive evil out of our lives and out of this world. Remember that no story in the Bible is isolated at all. They all find their place masterfully placed inside of a greater story. The same can be said for your story. It is all masterfully placed inside a greater story. Your story is not isolated nor is your pain meaningless and unseen. Any more than this story, this story that finds its place in the greater story, this story that that shows and demonstrates, proves again the purpose and love, the power and compassion of Jesus. My story, Jesus is doing the same thing. Your story, no matter what stage you're in, even if you feel like the father holding his child overwhelmed, Your story, he's doing the same, and he's revealing his power, his compassion, his love, 
his ultimate authority, his self-emptying love, that he'd come to you. So Jesus, we thank you that that's true of this story, but it's true also of our story. That you possess a self-emptying love that would first descend to come and be among us. That you'd love us like that. Jesus, we thank you. And Jesus, we ask you, forgive us. The times when we in our arrogance have failed to go to you, to turn to you, when, when in times of fear and being overwhelmed, we chose not to turn your direction. Jesus, we say to you, we believe, but help us when we struggle to trust you. Help us. For families who are here, who just on a day like today really identify with this fear, help us, Jesus. We believe. Would you come and rescue? Would you come and heal? Would you come and give life? Jesus, come help us. We believe. Jesus, help us. Jesus, thank you for your great commitment to us. Jesus, thank you for the reminders of your compassion for us. Jesus, thank you for the reminder of your power you have. Jesus, thank you. We look your direction. In Jesus' name.